It's good to be with you this morning again and uh, to be able to spend time together in, oops, I think I just loosened that. Thank you, Mike. Uh, in the Lord's Word, it's good to have uh, my wife Vanessa here. This always feels a little more uh, like at least someone might support me. Um, <laughs> just in case, you never know what, what might happen. It's, uh, it's an important day in the life of our family. <clears throat> Four years ago this morning, our, uh, our youngest uh, baby daughter, Adriel, was born. Today we celebrate uh, her birthday and we think back on God's faithfulness. Uh, it was a complicated pregnancy. It's always difficult when you have a baby and go home from the hospital without the baby. Uh, our uh, Adriel stayed in the NICU for a week before we could take her home, and yet uh, we've seen so much growth and so much joy that she brings us, and we've seen God's faithfulness uh, in all the situations we've encountered with her. And so in our house, we celebrate uh, birthdays by saying, that God is good. In fact, all the celebrations in our house are the repetition of the idea of the goodness of God. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate that God is good in sending his son. If we celebrate uh, an anniversary, we celebrate God is good in giving us years together. If we're celebrating Easter, we celebrate God is good in uh, the giving of his son, the dying on the cross, and ultimately conquering death and resurrection three days later. And so if you ever uh, want, uh, you can ask our five-year-old Kalia, uh, why we celebrate, and she'll always give you the same answer, whether it's a birthday or whether it's uh, a Christmas or Easter or an anniversary. Uh, sometimes we just celebrate because it's the end of the week and we want chocolate cake, but we have that because God is good, and so sometimes we go out for supper as a family, and whatever day it might be, and we talk about the fact that God is good in whatever situations he uh, uh, brings us through, whether it's uh, good or bad, and so uh, uh, today we celebrate the goodness of God in uh, giving us our, uh, our sweet Adriel as a, as a four-year-old. And I tell you all that partly because it's true and partly because I think that's the same thing that we would want to do two days from now. Two days from now, it'll be October 31st, and it'll be exactly 500 years since Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 theses, at least as we understand it. We kind of lean on history and on tradition, uh, understanding that he uh, posted those uh, theses that he wrote uh, to the church door at Wittenberg. He may have, he may not have. Um, it's uh, interesting background if you get into studying some of that. But nonetheless, we're uh, two days away from the 500th anniversary. And rather than trying to celebrate how great Martin Luther was, he, he did do some good things. He was a, a deeply flawed individual, uh, did do some terrible things as well. Uh, we celebrate because God is good. And God is good in reminding us of the importance of his word. And one of the keys to understanding the Reformation and the thinking that comes out of the Reformation is this, this reminder of the reliance on God's Word and the truth that He brings us. And so, this morning, I want to kind of revisit, if you will, some Reformation passages, some of the passages that Martin Luther found enlightening as he was... Um, as it came to light through the Word of God as to how God works and, and what God does. And so this morning, I'd invite you to start with sort of a, a key passage in the life of Martin Luther in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Uh, you probably have your outline in the, um, in the materials that have been handed out. I did make one change um, 
you'll see at the top of the outline, we're talking about Romans 1, and it probably says John 14. Well, I know it says John 14. It's because that's exactly what I told Lisa to put in there, John 14. I have changed that to 1 Corinthians 1, although, again, I highly recommend John 14, and I'd welcome you to read that. Um, But nonetheless, we're going to look primarily at Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 as well. I want to begin in Romans 1 because uh, uh, it it is the text that uh, sort of the Holy Spirit illuminated in the life of Martin Luther and... um and uh, uh, helped him to to come to an understanding of what true Christian faith is. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. We'll get there. There we go. Uh, as we look at Romans 1, uh, so, so Martin Luther, really in, in his, the early parts of his life, he, he was struggling with the idea of how can I be right with God, or how can I connect with God? I'm sinful, he's holy, how, how can you do that? You probably know some of the background to his story. Uh, he was pursuing a, a path towards a law degree uh, and uh, eventually finds himself in a promise and a thunderstorm uh, where uh, there's lightning and so on. He had had a, a friend who had died from getting struck by lightning, and uh, as he was in a storm, cried out that uh, if the patron uh, saint that he was crying out to would save him, he would become a monk. And he survived, and so he became a monk. And so, uh, in his words, uh, if there was a way to be saved through monkery, uh, he would do it. He was the most uh, devout of monks and trying to make himself uh, right with God. Uh, he literally drove everyone nuts. That's just the easiest way to sum up that history to the place where they said, and you should always say this, if someone's going to cause trouble, um, you say, uh, go get yourself a Bible degree and start teaching theology. So um, when I was a little boy, my dad was a pastor, and I, I have to confess, I just had trouble sitting still. We would always sit in the front row, kind of right here where the gardeners are sitting. And I have an older brother, he's 18 months old, and he was obedient. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about me in light of him. He was the obedient one. And so what I tried to do, since my dad was the pastor, my mom, and I want my, my brother and then me, which would be one, one seat away, never worked out that way. But I always, the threat was, look, if you keep talking, you'll have to go up and preach. So anyway, um, he, he, here we are, a- and uh, L- Luther was told that with all the struggles that he was having, he was trying to make himself right with God, and so if fasting was the way to make yourself right with God, he would fast longer than anyone else. Uh, if, if, if beating yourself was what was the way to, to, to deal with your sin and make yourself right with God, twice Luther beat himself unconscious to the place where he was almost dead. Uh, Luther pursued every means that... Uh, a monk could pursue between confessing sin and, and, and praying and, and sleeping on a cold floor with, with no blanket and no pillow and, and anything he could to deal with his sin. And, and he pursued it more vigorously than, than monks before. And, and, and the encouragement was, you need to uh, read the Word of God. And so uh, he began to focus in the book of Romans, and he came across <clears throat> this passage, Romans 1, um, All of it's important, but I really want to just pick it up in verse 17. For in the gospel, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God 
is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Luther was thinking about this passage, and what I first want to help you do is understand how Luther understood this passage. Then I will remind you that this will be incorrect. So I'm going to begin by teaching you something that is incorrect. I think you'll understand as we go through it. And so what Luther sees in his medieval mindset is that God is holy, right? God is without sin. That is correct. Uh, God is righteous. Uh, That is correct. Uh, He, Martin Luther, or anyone else, was not holy and not righteous. And and so the righteousness was this thing that God had, and it's the thing that we need, right? If we want to connect with a holy God, if we want to connect with a righteous God, then we need to be holy, we need to be righteous. Our problem is, because of our sin, we're not holy, we're not righteous. Does that make sense? So God is righteous, we are not, and, and, and Luther's trying to to connect. How can I be right before God? And so he reads this passage, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and he would grit his teeth. As a matter of fact, at one point, he would confess as uh, part of uh, being a monk was confessing your sin, and he would set records as to how many he would confess and for how long he would confess. And you may have heard some of those stories, but he would confess that he hated God. I mean, look at what the text says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so when God is revealing his righteousness, it only reveals to us our wickedness, our sinfulness. And so he saw God as this sort of unattainable standard he could never get to. If it was fasting, he couldn't fast enough. If it was, if it was uh, mutilating the body in some way, whether beating yourself, if it was confession, I just could never, even as I'm confessing my sin, I'm sinning in the selfishness of thinking I've already confessed all my sin, or I'm sinning in the selfishness or in the lying of not confessing other sins. And so he just could never figure out. And so the righteousness of God weighed down on him. Okay, God is righteous, I am not, and so this passage weighs heavy on his heart. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. See, God is right, and I am wrong, and no matter what I do, I can't make myself right. And he goes on to read, a righteousness that is from faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so what Luther understood in his medieval mindset was that this righteousness is this heavy weight. God stands standard, you fall short, right? No matter what he does, God's standard, he falls short. And so the righteousness of God is what weighs heavily on his heart. He can never get there. He he can't be good enough. He can't confess enough. He can't fast enough. He can't, whatever they put before him, he can't get there to, to, to be, to connect with God, to join with God. God is righteous. He is not. And so he reads this passage and feels a weightiness. I don't really know how else to, to say it because he sees righteousness as a quality of God. He sees righteousness and a, as a characteristic of God. And by the way, righteousness is a quality of God. It is a characteristic of God. And so, as he is studying scripture, Romans, Galatians, and Psalms are really where he spends a lot of his time going back and forth. And he comes back to this passage, and he hates this passage. This passage makes him feel guilty. 
the righteousness of God. Oh yeah, that's that line up here. And, and me, I, I'm sinful. I'm, I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. I, I, I can't get rid of all my sin. I can't even confess. Should I confess all day, every day? I still, I'm sinning faster than I can confess in my wicked heart, in my brokenness, in my pride, and, 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 and all those other things. And in his study and with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, he comes to realize he misunderstands the word righteousness in this passage. Because while righteousness is a quality of God, well, God is righteous. Well, God, that is an attribute of God. What is God like? He is a righteous God. Well, well that's certainly a quality of God. It's not quite what Paul is saying here. Paul says in Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, that's the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The, the, the righteous will live by, by faith in what? But, but what, what do you mean, Paul, that the righteous will live by faith? What, what does that mean? And, and, and he, he works in his study to try and understand this righteousness because he begins by hating it. He hates the fact that God is righteous because it puts the bar so high and it puts him so low and he realizes he can never be made right with God. He can't be righteous. And as he studies this, the righteous will be, uh, the righteous will live by faith. He realizes that well, God is righteous, and he certainly is, well, that is a characteristic of God, and it certainly is, well, it's one of God's attributes. In this passage, it's not talking about righteousness as a quality of God. It's talking about righteousness as a gift. That, that, that he can receive someone else's righteousness. And the light bulb goes on. And, and, and that really begins to form the basis of what will become the Reformation. Martin Luther never sought out to reform anything. He wanted to fix a few things in the church. There's no doubt about that. But, but what came to be understood is the fact that righteousness isn't merely an attribute of God. It is an attribute of God. Righteous isn't merely something that God is and we are not, although God is righteous and we are not. Righteousness is a gift. It's something God gives us. And the way we get it is not through fasting. The way we get it is not through penance or confession. It's not even through the bread and the wine that we get God's righteousness. We get it by believing in it. Specifically, not just this general belief in righteousness, but a, a, a believing in the gift of righteousness that comes from Jesus. Our faith in Jesus gives us Jesus' righteousness. And all of a sudden, we can appear right before a holy God. Because we're so good? No. Because he's so good. And he gives us the gift of righteousness. This literally sets the man on fire. I, I mean, it, it is shocking to him that he so struggled with this passage, Romans 1.17, and all the meaning of righteousness, uh, Old Testament and New, that, that God, that, that he was just this, this guy you could never get close to because he was right and you weren't. And all of a sudden, he comes to understand, no, no, righteousness is something that God is willing to give us, and that 
is the centrality of the theology of the cross. And that's what Luther begins to spend his life on. This idea of the centrality of the theology of the cross, that Jesus gives us righteousness which we can receive by faith. Or you can just try and make yourself righteous. That's how Luther spent the first good chunk of his life was trying to make himself righteous, doing the right things, confessing enough sin that somehow he would be righteous. And he never got there until he found this passage. And so he realizes that then Jesus, or then God, because we can receive Jesus' righteousness, that we can be clothed with Jesus' righteousness rather than our own, that then God declares us righteous. We're declared righteous before God because we're without sin. No, we're all sinful. Luther's sinful. No, no, we're declared righteous because we have been received, we have received Jesus' righteousness and his righteousness is up to par. It's up to standard. It's without sin. And so Jesus clothes us with his righteousness and being clothed with his righteousness, there's a declaration from 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 God Almighty who's acting as judge and that declaration is, you are right. You are righteous clothed with Jesus righteous clothed with Jesus righteousness which we have received by faith and so this becomes luther's anyone who doesn't see this ultimately luther will get angry with i mean really that's really what it comes down to if you can't see that the righteousness is not something you can earn but if we were tomorrow to walk down the streets of Frisco and ask people who, who aren't believers, who, who don't go to church, who, who are not saved, if we were to ask them about heaven, and if some of them would believe, I'm sure some would say, well, I don't believe in that, uh, but those who would believe in heaven, is the average person think they're going to heaven, at least the people who believe in heaven? Yeah. Based on what? It's the same thing. This is the way Luther was was raised. He was raised to think that when I am good enough, and good enough is being good and dealing with the bad, it kind of has a two-sided thing, that I can get there. And so Luther tries to do that times 10. As, I mean, he gives, leaves law school and, and goes to become a monk, and, and, and you name it, he does it to try that. And that thinking had infiltrated the church by this point in history, but that thinking has always been around. It's what's in Frisco today, or Little Elm or McKinney. It's what people think. People who believe that there is an afterlife, believe in heaven, all know they're going there because they are good. Their righteousness gets them there, which begs the question, of course, how good could the place be if it's based on our own righteousness? Luther, of anyone, was able to see that in his most righteous state, he wasn't very righteous. And so this is the question that, that Luther that creates the foundation for this entire movement that begins to develop from this. And I want to show you a few passages that Luther deals with once he understands that righteousness is something God gives us. We don't earn it. We get it and we receive it by faith. And it's the righteousness that's not just sort of out there. It's Jesus' righteousness by dying on the cross for our sins. Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, right at the very end of the book of Mark. Luther begins to ask himself the question, how has God revealed himself to us? 
How has God revealed himself to us? How does he? And there's this contrast at the end of Mark that is helpful to see what Luther is uh, seeing here. Uh, this is right at the, uh, at the death of Christ, Christ being put uh, to death on the cross, picking up the story in Mark 15, verse 29. Mark 15, verse 29. Jesus has now just been put up on the cross. They've put up the sign that says the King of the Jews. <clears throat> verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that they might see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Okay, so scenario one, Jesus is up on the cross. How does God make himself known? How does God reveal himself? Well, those walking by, those being crucified, the priests and the teachers of the law, their expectation is, well, you go up on the cross and then you come down. That's how he'll reveal himself. He, he wants to be Messiah? Come down. Step down. That, that, that's what they're saying, right? I mean, they're making fun of him. He's saved others. Can he save himself? Just come down. And so the expectation from the teachers of the law, from the religious leaders, from those walking by and mocking him, even from the, those being crucified who are also heaping insults on him, the expectation is reveal yourself by coming down. Does that make sense? That, that, that's what they're saying. Come down from the cross. That, that'll show us your Messiah. Our expectation is that if you really are the Son of God, you never could be crucified in the first place. So show us that you're the Son of God by coming down. So here's Luther's point. He says, notice how God reveals himself. You, of course, know Jesus doesn't come down. He, he dies. I mean, eventually he's taken down, but he's taken down dead, only to conquer death uh, three days later in resurrection. Let's keep reason, uh, reading uh, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it for Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. So now we've got kind of another idea. Maybe God reveals himself by sending Elijah to come down and to take Jesus off the cross. So maybe he can't take himself off, the nails and all, but maybe Elijah could come and, and, and come down. And you'll remember Elijah is sort of this model prophet because, because he doesn't die. He's, remember, he, he's taken up, he's caught up uh, in a whirlwind and, and taken to heaven. And so, therefore, it, it's a Elijah, who's often pictured as the one who could come back because he's never died. And so that's, that's why uh, Elijah's being used here as, in, as uh, sort of the, the model prophet. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, the curtain is what, what restricts people from seeing into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies would be the presence of God. So in other words, the presence of God has been exposed, been made known. 
verse 39, and when the centurion, that would be a Roman soldier, uh, who stood in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man, well, hold it, surely this man was the son of God. The centurion thinks God has revealed himself. We just had a whole bunch of verses of people saying, well, why don't you sh- show us who you are? Come down from the cross. Or, or maybe call Elijah and have him take you down. And the centurion says that a Roman, not, not a Jew, not, not a religious man by, by any stretch of the imagination, sees how he dies and says, surely this man uh, was the son of God. <clears throat> you see, the centurion sees what's going on by faith. Now, he wasn't trying to have faith. He literally was probably involved in some way in the execution. And in that, he says, I mean, first of all, let's just think about some of the things we just read. Middle of the day, sun goes out. Okay? That, that's going to get people's attention. Everyone's. Okay? It's not normal. Unless it's an eclipse or something, that just doesn't happen. And, and so the, the sun goes out, and he sees all that's going on, and, and he sees... And says, surely this man was the son of God. And this is Luther's point. God tends not to reveal himself in the ways that we might expect. What did we expect? Well, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the the Bible scholars, the seminary folk, if you will, of the day, they're the ones who said, just come down. That'll show us. Come down. Come down from the cross. And, And yet, it isn't coming down. It's in suffering. It's it, God is being revealed in difficulty and in trials. And the reason Luther brings this up is he says, this is what we were to expect. And he goes back to the Psalms. And remember, Luther's focus is on the Psalms and on Romans and on Galatians. He, that's, that's really where he spends his time and he's learning so much. He goes back to Psalm 19, verse 67, uh, which reads, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And so it talks about the affliction and the word of God. And, and if you remember Psalm 119, it's all about the word of God. Uh, verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. In other words, I would learn who you were, God, through my difficulties, through my trials. Psalm uh, 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you've afflicted me. That, that, that God is revealing himself, making himself known, not in what we would expect, walk away from crucifixion, but rather, no, he dies in crucifixion. That he, well, Paul will write about this. And this is what Martin Luther is beginning cling, uh, begin to cling to, which is this explanation as to how God reveals himself. And rather than you give you Luther's words, let's look at Paul's words so we get an understanding of precisely what Luther means when he says the centrality of the Reformation is the theology of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because ultimately, this is what I think we should remember 
in two days as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of Luther posting his 95 theses. Not Luther and not even the 95 theses, which in the end weren't that important. Uh, although it did start a movement, what becomes most important is Luther coming to understand and, and really being reminded of what the church had understood in the past and in many ways lost their way, and what Luther had come to understand and ultimately what we can come and understand. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, of course, that he planted, picking up in verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Let's go back to 22. We'll get the beginning of the sentence. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is what Luther would say the Reformation is all about. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Okay, go back and think to Mark 15. Jewish leaders, Jewish teachers of the law, they're asking Jesus to come down. It's a stumbling block to them that he stays up there and dies. I mean, if you're really Messiah, come down. Why, why would you die? It doesn't make sense to them. It's a stumbling block to them to understand this, and this is what Paul is saying. And even foolishness to Gentiles, although one Gentile, a Roman centurion, recognizes Surely this was the Son of God. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, but to, I'm sorry, uh, uh, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul is describing this very idea that Jesus doesn't come down from the cross. It's kind of foolish he dies on the cross. He shows weakness. Now, he could have come down, but he chose not to. He dies, and so God is modeling himself. God is revealing himself in a way that's unexpected. And that helps us to understand why Luther first misunderstood Romans 1.17 and then came to understand it with the illumination of the Holy Spirit that God isn't asking him to beat himself unconscious to try and deal with his sin. He can't. God's not asking him to fast and go without food till he finally starves himself to death, as if that would take care of his sin because it won't. God covers the sin, covers the penalty by providing his son to do what is right, to provide the righteousness. And so it doesn't even make sense to people. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block that Jesus would go to the cross and that he would die so that we could receive his righteousness. And, and this is the thing, this is just what, it, it constantly, in everything that Luther is doing, it's the recognition that I don't earn Christ's righteousness, Christ gives it to me, I simply receive it by faith. Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. The righteousness is received from God, it's a gift from God. It isn't merely a quality, because if it's just a quality, then it looks like we are unrighteous, he's righteous, and we can never bridge the gap, right? We can never be righteous enough to be as righteous as the one God who never has sinned, who has nothing to do with sin, who's completely holy. 
But yet, and so this is what's being described is the, is the, what, what Luther will call the theology of the cross is what Paul is writing here. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, um, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is uh, stronger than human strength. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble, uh, were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, things like dying on the cross, that's a despised way to die, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, that's the path Luther was on. He was the path towards boasting, which is, I fasted enough that I've been made righteous, or I've confessed enough, I've done enough penance that I'm righteous, or, or, or I've done whatever it is that he was doing to try and make himself righteous. And so that would have been, if it would have worked, that would have been a path for boasting, which is, Luther, how did you make yourself right with God? I did enough. But Luther comes to realize, I could never do enough. And then he realizes and sees this in Paul, there is no room for boasting because what does Luther do to save himself? Nothing. None of us do, right? We, 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 there is nothing we can do. And so this is where, this is what makes Luther so angry is that he had spent his whole life, if you will, in the church trying to do enough to make himself right before God. And he comes to us, that's not even how God reveals himself. God reveals himself in ways that kind of appear foolish, right? It, it's, it's a stumbling block for many people. And, and so he uses illustrations like Mark 15, where, where you have the religious leaders telling Jesus to come down off the cross, and you have a Roman centurion, a, a, a godless man, if you will, part, not part of the circumcised community of, of, uh, uh, of the Jews, and yet he correctly identifies Jesus as the Son of God, that God was identified in weakness, in death rather than in conquering death by coming down, which surely Jesus could have done. So this is the theology, which Luther calls the theology of the cross. Once we recognize that Jesus' death creates righteousness that then God the Father gives to us. Jesus' death creates righteousness. Jesus is right. He, he, he doesn't have to pay for his own sin because he has no sin of his own. So he has this righteousness that then we can be clothed with that we can receive by faith. And so this is the theology of the cross. So if you went and, and if Luther could be here this morning and you said, well, Luther, what, what was the big deal in the Reformation? Sum it up for me. He would say, folks, it's the theology of the cross. It's this Jesus-centered idea that he has done the work for us. And see, so I began by saying that in our home, we celebrate because God is good. And I think that's what we want to be reminded of 500 years later, and should the Lord tarry 500 years from now again, is that Christ has provided us the righteousness that we can receive by faith, and in doing so, we are made right with God. We can be united with God. We can cry out to our God as Father.
the Reformation, really a little bit after Luther's time, comes to be known for five distinctives, often given in Latin, the word sola meaning uh, only. And so the five distinctives, you've probably come across them in the past, sola scriptura, uh, the scripture alone or God's word alone, um, often misunderstood uh, today, but the idea of that being the final authority that ultimately we make decisions uh, in our lives based on the final authority of the word of God. Reason has its place, tradition uh, ha- has, has a role it can play, but in the end, nothing can go against that which God says, the idea of sola scriptura. Sola fide, by faith alone, we are not saved somehow by our works, or, or a, a co, sometimes salvation is described as something me and Jesus do together, right? So I, I, I do 60, ah, 62%, get Jesus to throw in the last 38%, we're good. Right? It's not a, it's not, it's sola fide. It's by faith. We receive Christ's righteousness. We don't, we don't receive righteousness, Christ's righteousness, and then, you know, add three things of our own. It's by faith alone. Uh, Sola gratia, by grace alone. We have not earned Christ's righteousness. We do not deserve Christ's righteousness. It is an act of God's grace. God does not need to save us. By his grace, nothing that we've earned, he chooses to. Sola gratia. Sola Christus, by Christ alone, the idea that Christ's death is sufficient. That, that it's not Christ's death plus God doing a couple other things and throwing some angels, you know, mixing it all in there. And it, it's, it's that there is a sufficiency in Christ's death. And by claiming that Christ's death is sufficient, we must claim that Christ then is Lord, right? Unless he is fully God, he wouldn't be sufficient. He would be sinful. You and I as humans were sinful, born with sinful natures in light of the uh, first sin in the garden. And so uh, Jesus' sufficiency to, to be our Savior is a way of expressing his divinity that he is divine. And then finally, sola, or sol del gloria, for God's glory alone. It, it, it shifts the emphasis. When Luther was growing up, you in the church, we in the church, we all are working to try and do the right things to, to get, make ourselves right with God. And now all of a sudden, we're not. We're doing the right things for the glory of God. You see the difference? You, you, you help for God's glory, n- not to try and save yourself. You can't save yourself. You, you, you serve to the glory of God, not, not because somehow if you serve, God will think better of you. You're sinful, okay? We're all sinful. We, he doesn't, doesn't think of us more or less. Our value is not our hairstyle or how fast we could run or, or how much money we've made uh, or how much this or how we can do that or our ability to sing or, or, or how many Twitter followers we might have. Uh, none of those things are valuable. Our value is being made in his image. We bear the image of the creator. So he sees us all as infinitely valuable and dreadfully sinful infinitely valuable. You are valuable never because of what you do. You're always valuable because of who you are. Not what you do, who you are. Who you are, you're made in the image of God. So your value is in whose image you bear. You're dreadfully sinful. And yet because we can receive Christ's righteousness by faith, we can then live in obedience to God not to try and help ourselves, save ourselves, to better ourselves, but for his glory. Does that make sense? We bear his image, and then we can serve him for his glory rather than for our gain. 
And, and so this is, these five solas really come to mark the Reformation, not for Luther. Okay, this really comes after him. Luther wouldn't go through all that. He'd say, oh, no, no, it's the theology of the cross. And more than likely, he'd take you right to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we went, and I got that from him, just so you know. We're just kind of following his thinking. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and so the, the, the Reformation becomes this time, and, and it's always important to kind of see, I, I like always comparing it to, to, to today, which is, you know, where are we going? Where are we going as a country right now? Or, or where are we going as a people? Or where's our world going right now with, with all that's going on and, and so on? It's hard to tell, right? It's pretty hard to say, well, definitively, I know within six years... I don't. I don't know what happens within six years. I don't know what happens in this country over there or that country over here. I, I, I don't know with international relations how, how, how these, the, these situations get resolved. If they do get resolved, we, we don't know. Well, at the time of Luther, they didn't know what was going on either. We look back and call it, you know, this time of reformation in the church, but it's not like they're mapping it out going, well, here's what's going to happen next. And, and so <clears throat> what comes to happen is that there are people who are, I'm going to use the word liberated, I'm not sure it's the right word, but, but they have this freedom with the coinciding of some of what Luther's done and some of what Luther's written with the invention of the printing press, which is making that which has been written uh, readable to a lot more people. And even at the time of the Reformation, still most people can't read, but a significantly more can read than two or three hundred years earlier. So reading is becoming much more dominant, not like it is today, but so many more can read. And so what happens is, instead of doing blog posts, they print pamphlets. And so Luther does writing, they print a pamphlet, a a short pamphlet, sometimes short treaties, they'll call them, uh, really small books. And people literally would read them to people who can't read. And so information would start to flow quickly. And so this idea of studying God's word and coming to, 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 to learn and understand, and with the, prefler- with, the, with the advancement of printing, that God's word was now available and being translated into more common languages, Luther translating uh, the, the Bible into, into uh, German uh, for the German peoples and so on, more and more people in more and more places began to do the same thing that Luther was doing reading their Bible. And so there's a, well, Luther was in the German lands, and it's kind of tricky because you don't have a Germany yet. You don't have nation states as we have them today. So we don't, we can't say, well, Luther was in Germany. There's no such thing, but he was amongst the German-speaking people in the German lands. It's it's more loose than what a country would be. And, and yet there's a, there's a rise in the Reformation amongst the, the Swiss, in the Swiss lands, uh, speaking Swiss German. Of course, Germans look down on Swiss German because they think it's a, a perversion of their own language and so on. And, and, and so, but yet there's reformers there. And then in Switzerland, there's movements and so on. And some of it becomes coordinated, it, coordinated and some of it doesn't. Uh, some of it all makes sense. And there starts to be factions uh, among them. And then there's this move in France. And, and France, really, the torch will ultimately be carried by John Calvin uh, in Geneva, uh, who would, Geneva really being part of the Swiss lands, but it's a French-speaking city, and so John Calvin of French descent has, has a profound influence not only in Geneva, but, but, but in, the, in, the, in the French area, what will become uh, ultimately France. And so you have these movements of people studying the scriptures and, and, and really trying to re-understand 
this connection of how we are connected to God, how we are made right with God, and what we are to do as the people of God. You know, what is the church, and how is the church supposed to operate? And, and in time, there's so much transformation. We look back on the whole time period, and we throw that name Reformation on it. And, and, and it's a time of reform for the church, and, and it certainly was, but it was also a time of quite a bit of chaos. And, and it always produces things that you don't expect. One of the results of these lands now that, are, that, that some are, are, are becoming reformed, or some will take the name Luther, and certainly the German lands that are followers of Luther and his teaching, uh, all of a sudden you no longer have, see, it used to be that everyone was Christian. Okay, and the way you figure that out was if you're part of the Roman Empire, then you were, and you were living, you, you were a Christian. Okay, that was assigned to you which had, of course, no meaning. But the idea was that everything could be resolved within the church because everyone was within the church. There was was no way to not be a part of the church, right? If you were living, you were baptized, you were a member, and once you were a member, you were a citizen. Once you were a citizen, you could be taxed. It was a beautiful, beautiful plan, okay? That's why you got to baptize them early. You don't want to miss too much of the tax time. So you get your your first six days are free. From that time, you got to check in and start paying. So, you, you have this phenomenon now of, of people now following, well, what do we call it, right? I mean, they're following Luther, and, and they're not really part of the church that's headed in Rome, and so, but they still, they go to church, they, they have preaching, assembly, and the Lord's Word, and the sacraments, and so on, although the sacraments, they're, they're ultimately going to become ordinances, is what they'll come to call them in time, and, and, and they won't have the same seven that the church in Rome has, they'll ultimately go down to two, to baptism, and, and the Lord's Supper, and so on, and, and so you have, of course, some who go, hey, if Finally, I can believe that I don't believe. So you have people who, who aren't part of anything. And there was never room for that in the past. And now all of a sudden you have people not connected to any sort of a church. Then you have all these different groups calling themselves the church. And, and, and they're primarily regional. Kind of think like North Texas. North Texas isn't really a place, right? But we all know where North Texas is. It's, it's where we are, and it's, it, it's not quite so defined that you could grab a map and say, this is, you know, here's the boundaries, but we all know what it is. Well, that's more how the land works in Europe at this point. And, and, and so you have, you have these regional influences of various reformers, the Swiss, the French, the German, and, and, and you have, of course, the church based in Rome, which used to have all of it. And, and, and so you, you then have people who aren't, part of any of it, who, who, have, who have kind of, well, you have issues with the, let me call it secular authority, the, the political power, and, and that has always been tied directly to the power of the church. And so you start to have the church undermining political power if you're a politician who is of this persuasion and the church in your area goes the other way. You're, you're a Catholic ruler and the church goes Protestant. You're a Protestant ruler and the church is Catholic. You can understand some of the problems there uh, as, a, as a kind of a secular power in there. And of course, the way we always solve our problems is we go to war. And so by the end of the time of Reformation, Europe is at war, and it'll be at war for many years as you look at all the various battles that are going on between now secular and sort of sacred Really, much of it isn't very sacred at all, but, but you have lots of problems, so much so that one in every five men die in the next 50 years. 
One in every five. 20% of the European population, male population, is wiped out from the wars that follow the Reformation. Ultimately, culture, society, looks for a better answer. How do we handle human ignorance? How do we handle human foolishness? Well, what comes to bear, and we get into the 1700s, into the 18th century, what comes to bear is the idea, human reason. We're so smart, we could figure this out. We are enlightened. We've got printing presses, so we can share ideas. And we can see that if you say you're a follower of Christ, what does that cause? War, chaos, death. And so that's not a very good guide. Why don't we use our minds to understand God? And with the birth of the time of the Enlightenment, which is really what follows the heels of the wars of the Reformation, all that go on there, with the birth of Enlightenment comes a new philosophy, which is, of course, you don't need God to figure out, or you don't need God's word to figure out who God is. Just use your mind. And so you begin to develop this idea that as I think and as I see the world, that's how I can figure out who God is. And and so the the expression that comes out in the 1700s, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, the age of enlightenment, for those who abandon scripture, what does scripture cause? War and death. In in their minds, that's what they're seeing. Scripture, you you know, you follow Luther, you follow Calvin, you follow uh, the Pope, you're going to end up at war with someone, it's going to cause war and death, so I'll just use my mind, I won't use Scripture. What you see when you look at science, when you look at culture, when you look at society, is you see a God who created it all, I mean, we don't have any other explanation for it, but who's no longer involved. You have the birth of deism. What happens in 1776? You have the formation of a new country, many of whom are involved in that are deists. Deists in the 17th century is what will give birth to what we have today, which are atheists. You see, we didn't have a way in the, seven, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, we didn't have a way to describe how God, uh, how earth could come to existence without using God. We just didn't know how it would happen. But we have an enlightened thinker named Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin comes along and says, I've got a way. I can figure this out. It's the, you know, the fr- fish became frogs, and then the, you know, the frogs became monkeys, and however else it all pieces together. But what he does is he creates a system that no longer needs God to be step one. Deism, you still need God to create. You just see that he's no longer involved. Not by reading scripture. You avoid scripture. You just use your mind human reason, human logic. And and, and so the age of enlightenment gives birth to deism and gives birth ultimately to Darwinism, to the idea of atheism. You no longer need God to create, and he's certainly not involved. Have you seen the news? And so now you have godlessness birthed out of Romans 1. Paul will address this, and Luther recognizes this. Romans chapter 1, we got to go back. Romans chapter 1, Paul will talk about what happens when we use our reason to justify our sin. 
that's exactly what deism gives birth to. Our reason to justify our sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Right after what Luther saw in verse 17, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see, once we become the arbiters of truth, once there is no standard, here's the standard, well, this causes war, so let's leave that alone. We'll create the own, our own standard. We now suppress, look what Paul says, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since there may be known about God, excuse me, since what may be known uh, about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, but understood from what has been made so that, all, uh, so that people are without excuse. So what Paul is saying is creation itself cries out for a creator, right? You can't go and say, see the Grand Canyon and go, huh, my dad did that. Yeah, he was just kind of working away there and kind of built that thing up. You, you can't look on a clear night when you're, you know, out in the country somewhere and see the stars and go, yeah, Americans, we put them all up there. Yeah, we've been working on that project for a while now. That's, that's all our work, right? We, we don't take credit for stars or Grand Canyons or oceans. We look at that and go, we, we did, we, my family, we, my country, we fellow humans, we didn't do that, right? And that's what Paul says, creation demands that. But it doesn't. We can just say, well, no, a big bang happened. Then it all kind of came together. It's not that we're claiming we caused it. That's not where we are. But nonetheless, we're trying to explain it without a creator. And so Paul is describing this. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, these people who are uh, um, the wrath of God is being revealed to um, because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. So here's what we can see from creation. His eternal power, right? You can go to the Niagara Falls and you go, wow, that's, I mean, one of the things about Niagara Falls is it's really loud. That much water coming, it's just a loud place to be. You see that power, his eternal power and his divine nature. Look at the stars and you go, huh, we, we didn't do that. That wasn't part of our space program. That, that was there before we started going up there. So that's what creation can be seen and understood. And because we can see and understand that much, we're without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. This is the enlightenment. And foolishness and foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise or enlightened, they became fools and exchanged the glory uh, of the immortal God for images made to look like a, a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires, uh, to the sinful desires of their hearts and to sexual impurity and degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served uh, created things rather than creator who is forever praised all men. And so that's what Paul talks about when he, or that's what Paul describes and what we can see through history. Now we see this in other places in history. We didn't need to wait for the enlightenment to see this, but we sure see it when we think that we will, our minds will be what brings and solves human ignorance is human reason. 
which is essentially saying we are the problem, therefore we will be the solution. It's just a bad plan. If we're the problem, we're going to need something other than us to be the solution, which has always been true, which is the theology of the cross. And so when we think back now some if in the next two days, some 500 years to when Luther posted those 95 theses, then I think this is what Luther would have wanted us to think. In light of what we see in culture, what we see when we put human reason uh, above everything, which is sort of an, an outworking of the wars of the, that come after the Reformation, back to 1 Corinthians. One, one last time, 1 Corinthians, we want to keep reading. We return to, first, uh, to Romans 1, now back to 1 Corinthians. And we'll pick it up again in verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, right? The work of Christ, who has become for, uh, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness. You see where Luther sees it? The righteousness comes from God. He's a giving the righteousness. Not only is he righteous, he's giving righteousness. That is our righteousness, our holiness and our redemption. Those are gifts of God. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so I think that's the thing that we need to come to remember. Not celebrating some person uh, like Luther, but much more, why do we say God is good? Because he's given us righteousness. He's given us holiness. He's given us redemption through Christ. And so it's a great time to be reminded of something that Luther in his context discovered. He didn't discover it, but in his context he discovered it, if that makes sense. He he wasn't aware of this thinking until he uh uh w- w- worked in the text and and continued to uh, to read and to study. And so I think a great way to think about what does the reformation matter to me in the end if we understand the centrality of the cross. If we understand the role of Christ, if we understand that righteousness is a gift, it's not merely an attribute of God, but it's something that God will give us through Christ if we receive it by faith, if we understand that, then I think sola del gloria is how we ought to live. Living all, doing all for God's glory. That's the reminder. That's why we want to remember this. Not because the history is so important. I think it's interesting. I even think it's helpful. But that's not the goal. The goal is to remember that at the center is the cross and our, and our Savior who is willing to be crucified and to clothe us with his righteousness, that we could be made right with God, that we are now free to live for his glory. Father, my prayer is that that would reign in all of our hearts, that we would recognize the centrality of your Son and the gift he has given us, the gift that you have provided in clothing us with, our, with his righteousness because we could never be right enough on our own, that we don't have to earn your favor, that you are willing to give it through suffering, through affliction, and, and, and you are willing to provide us redemption and salvation that we can be made right with you.
And so I pray that uh, our desire this week and this day would be to live for your glory, to do what is right, not because we think uh, somehow we'll gain more of your favor, but to do what is right to bring honor and glory to you, to your Son, that we might be servants in your kingdom, that we might help to build your church, to serve others, to love, to give. I ask your blessing on each one here, and as uh, we remember over these next few days what happened some 500 years ago, Father, we remember the cross. We remember our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.